0: Once upon a time, about 4,000 years ago, and just think about that for a moment, 4,000 years ago, somewhere around the year 2091 BC, uh, God spoke to a man by the name of Abraham uh, in the land of Ur, and he spoke to him and he made him a promise. And this is what God promised Abraham. He said, Abraham, I promise to give you a great name. And God kept that promise because people all over the world know Abraham as a founder of three of the world's greatest religions. Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And God kept that promise. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father and the founder of a great nation. And today, everybody on this planet uh, knows of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. So God kept that promise. Abraham, I'm going to make you the father and the founder of a great nation. Uh, I'm going to make your nation into a kingdom. Your family's gonna become a nation and that nation's gonna become a kingdom because kings will come from you. And God eventually kept that promise when the kingdom of Israel began, uh, when King Saul was crowned king over all of Israel. And then he promised Abraham, he said, Abraham, I promise you a descendant will come from you who will bless the entire world. That in some way there will be some cosmic global significance to the birth and to the life of one of your future descendants. And when God made this promise to Abraham, it was the promise of a coming savior. It was the promise of a coming king. It was the promise of the Messiah. Uh, It was the promise of Christmas itself. And that's really what God was promising Abraham. He was promising him Christmas. Generations later, uh, God made another promise that said, when this savior comes, when this king arrives, when the Messiah shows up, he's gonna emerge not only as a descendant of Abraham, but he's gonna emerge out of the tribe of one of Abraham's grandsons by the name of Judah. That when Messiah comes, he's gonna come out of the tribe of Judah. When this king comes, he's gonna come out of the tribe of Judah because Judah is gonna be the royal tribe. It's gonna be the tribe from which kings will come from. Uh, A thousand years later, a thousand years after this, after the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Uh, God made another promise and said, when the savior comes, uh, when this king is born, not only will he be a descendant of Abraham and not only will he come from the tribe of Judah, but he will come from a very specific line, a very specific family line in the tribe of Judah. He's gonna come from the grandson of one of the Old Testament's most famous couple, Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth and Boaz, they're gonna have a grandson. And that's where the Savior, the King, the Messiah is gonna come. He's gonna come from the line of Jesse. And around this time period, God also promised that not only will this Savior, this King, be a descendant of Abraham and out of the tribe of Judah and out of the line of Jesse, but he will also arise out of the house of one of Jesse's sons, perhaps his greatest son. He will arise out of the house of of David, and it was to David that God promised that one day one of his heirs, one of his future sons, would sit over a kingdom that would never end. 300 years after David has died and stepped off the pages of history, God uses the prophet Isaiah to speak another promise. And the prophet Isaiah spoke a promise on behalf of God that said, hey, before this savior comes, before this king comes, before the Messiah comes, God himself will give the world a sign. God himself will make sure that the world cannot ignore this person. It's gonna be the sign of the virgin. Behold the Lord himself, Isaiah said. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive a son and call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. A couple hundred years after Isaiah spoke those words, 200 years after Isaiah, there was a guy by the name of Micah. It's 500 years before Jesus would show up. And 200 years after Isaiah, Micah says, when this savior comes, when this king comes, when this this Messiah comes, not only will he be the descendant of Abraham, not only will he come from the tribe of Judah and the line of Jesse out of the house of David, not only will he be born to a young virgin, but he will be born in the town of Bethlehem. This was God's promise about Christmas. And the only thing that was left after all of this was the waiting. Now last week, if you weren't here, we talked about the fact that when God speaks a promise, that when God speaks his word, when God speaks a promise, that all of time, space, and matter begin to coalesce around that promise in order to construct a reality that ultimately brings that promise to pass. When God speaks a promise, everything that we can see, everything that we can see, Everything that we can touch, everything that we can experience, everything all the way down to quarks and atoms and subatomic levels, everything begins to coalesce around God's promises in order to create a reality that brings the promise to pass. In other words, all of reality is always moving in the direction of God's promises That's what we see happening in the Old Testament. And that's what we believe is happening in all of our lives right now. Despite what you can see, what you can't see, despite what life feels like right now, all of the reality of this world, all the reality of your world, all the details, all the storylines, all the circumstances, all of it is moving in the direction of God's promises being kept to you and to me and to us and to the world. In the Old Testament, we see all of the reality of history moving in the direction of God's promises. And and specifically, all throughout the Old Testament, we find history moving in the direction of Christmas. And that is the story of the Old Testament. Ever since God spoke to Abraham, history was moving in the direction of Christmas. And what was experienced by those people, people like you, people like me, what was experienced by those people in the Old Testament, in real time, in their time, what felt like a step back, was in God's time actually a step forward towards his promises being fulfilled. What they experienced in real time, their time as pain, in God's time, it was purpose. And there was a purpose that was driving people closer and closer to God's promises being fulfilled. What in their time, in real time, seemed to be accidental and incidental actually turned out to be in God's time, neither accidental or incidental. Now we see it pretty clearly when we look back because we're on this side of Christmas. And when we look back on the other side of Christmas to men and women who live their lives believing that one day God was gonna keep his promise, it seems clear to us But for the people who were living on the front side of Christmas before Christmas ever came, for those people, it wasn't always clear. It wasn't always obvious that God was up to something. It wasn't always obvious that reality was moving in the direction of God's promises because at times it felt as though God was absent. It seemed as though God was silent. And it seemed as though God at times had forgotten his promises and worse, had forgotten his people. And the whole storyline reminds us of something that I want to make sure you're reminded of this Christmas, that you take into the next year, that you take into the next few seasons of your life, that you take for the rest of your life. And and here's the idea. We almost always can't see what God is doing until after he's already done it. Oftentimes we can't see what God is doing in real time, in our time. We most often can't see what God is doing until after God has already done it. From our limited perspective, your limited perspective, my limited perspective, it's impossible for us to see everywhere where God is working. You can't see where God is working all over this planet, all over this community, all over the place. You you can't possibly understand everything that God is up to and everything that God is trying to accomplish. It's just too limited uh, from our perspective. And so it was for the people on the front side of Christmas. Generations of people in the Old Testament, busy with life, busy dealing with life, just like us. But they lived and they died. They lived and they died without seeing and without knowing that God was up to something. They couldn't tell what it was. They didn't know what it was, but they believed that God was up to something. And so they lived and they died without seeing it and without knowing what it was. And in their days, what looked like random events, what looked like the normal course of things, what seemed like a natural disaster, what seemed like a skirmish or a battle or just an inconsequential war, uh, another king takes the throne, a king dies, another empire arises, what, what seemed like just the normal course of things, random events that have absolutely no connection That they're just random with no consequence whatsoever. What they could not see, we can see clearly that it was actually God moving all time, space, and matter to make it coalesce around His promises, to construct a reality that would ultimately bring His promises to pass. And that's where Luke begins the story that we've all heard. He says, In those days, In those days when all time, space, and matter were converging upon one particular moment in history to create a reality that would bring about the fulfillment of the promise of God. In those days, in those days where it seemed like there was just a lot of random things going on, in those days when it seemed as though there were just inconsequential, unrelated things, in those days when Caesar Augustus was on the throne, a guy by the name of Gaius Octavian, that's how he was born, Gaius Octavian, Uh, He was uh, the the favorite nephew of Julius Caesar, and I know I I love history, and some of you can't stand it, but I'm going to bore you with it until you get rid of me. So just deal with it, and you know, buck up, buttercups, because here it comes. And and this this is this is important because some of these things you've heard about all your life, and some of these things you you talked about in high school or in lit class or college, or you know, you've, you've seen specials on it or you've seen movies made about it, Julius Caesar was the uncle of Gaius Octavian, who later becomes known as Caesar Augustus. He, he was the favorite nephew uh, that Julius had. And, and Julius Caesar that we remember, we hear, we hear these stories about and, and, and we know him from history and it just seems like these were stories somebody told us to memorize and, and, and this is why this is important. But Luke is telling us a story that that there's nothing out there that isn't moving in the direction of God's promises, that there, there's nothing unrelated, that there's nothing disconnected from the plan and the purposes of God. So Julius loved his nephew, Octavian, and Octavian was quite the impressive guy. I mean, he, he was a smart strategy, he was a great soldier. Uh, he actually led the conquest of Spain, which was a major military expedition for the Roman Republic, and, and so he was impressive. No wonder his uncle Julius loved him so much Uh, But then, as many of you remember the story, but March 15th, 44 BC, the Roman Senate conspired against Julius Caesar and had him assassinated. Do you remember that whole thing? Cassius Brutus, you know, he's bleeding out and that whole thing. And it just seems like, you know, wow. You know, that's just something I remember from history. Surely to God, it doesn't have anything to do with what we're reading about in the gospel of Luke. But Julius gets assassinated And then they call for Octavian to come back from war and on the way back to Rome, he realizes that he had been adopted by Julius Caesar. And so when he found out that he had been adopted by Julius Caesar and that he was the heir to everything, he took the name Octavian Caesar. And so to avenge the death of his uncle who had left him basically the empire, he teamed up with a guy that you may have heard of by the name of Mark Antony. Mark Antony was his brother-in-law. That means that Mark Antony was married to Octavian's sister. And so they teamed up to avenge the death of Julius Caesar, but somewhere along the way, there was some family trouble brewing because Mark Antony fell out of love with Octavian's sister and fell in love with another woman by the name of Cleopatra. And let me tell you, the quickest way to family trouble is when you fall out of love with your brother-in-law's sister. It's gonna make Thanksgiving and Christmas really difficult. So he hooks up with Cleopatra. Cleopatra and Mark Antony, they fight against Octavian trying to, to take you know the Roman Empire, but they're defeated at the Battle of Actium. They both commit suicide in 31 BC and Octavian becomes the first Roman emperor. He transitions the Roman Republic to a Roman Empire, the first emperor of the Roman Empire. A couple of years later, the Roman Senate, the same Senate that conspired to kill Julius Caesar, they decided to vote and make him a god, just like... Senate politicians. They'll vote to kill you, two years later, nah, we think you're pretty, gaga. let's make this dude to God. And so they decided to make him a God. And so Julius Caesar became the, the deified Julius. He was the first person that was deified by the Romans. And when he became deified, when he became a God, Octavian became the son of a God. And in 27 BC, the Roman Senate conferred upon Octavian the title Augustus which means majestic one, holy one, or savior of the world. So this is what Luke is saying. In those days, Caesar Augustus, the one who is known as the savior of the world, the majestic one, the emperor. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, So Caesar, he's thinking about tax reform, right? He's thinking about, he's wanting to change the whole system and, and no longer does he want to tax entire communities, but he wants to tax individuals. And if he's going to tax individuals in the empire, then he's got to count them. And so what just seemed like a political idea, what seemed like an economic theory, just geopolitics and economics at play was so much more than that. Caesar is walking his halls, thinking about a worldwide census, thinking about worldwide tax reform. But in the midst of it all, God is at work. What seemed just political, what seemed just economical, what seemed unrelated, just random, the normal course of things was actually God at work. Now, this is really important, and I think you should write it down or make a note of it. But there's a great verse in Proverbs 21. Proverbs 21, verse one says, The king's heart... The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord and God, he steers their hearts like waters in the river, which means that God is in control of this world. The power brokers of this world, their hearts are steered by the hand of providence. And if that's true, and I believe it is, what that means for us is we shouldn't freak out about what people in power decide to do. We shouldn't stress out about what the power brokers of this world decide to do. We don't freak out about the latest news cycle because we believe somewhere in the background, God is at work. That all of reality is moving in the direction of God's promises. That God is the author of history. He's in control. That somehow, beyond our ability to articulate and understand, He is. He has woven our choices into his eternal plan and purpose. And what seems accidental and what seems incidental, actually it's neither of those things because all of reality is always moving in the direction of God's promises being fulfilled. So Octavian, Caesar, Augustus, 1500 miles away from Palestine, 1500 miles away from Jerusalem. He's never read the first word of a Hebrew prophet. And he has no idea that his one idea to enact tax reform, his one idea to have a census is actually gonna set in motion a series of events which is gonna bring the world Christmas. The most powerful man in the world is merely a pawn of providence who's making a way for a king, the final king, a baby king. Luke goes on and says, This was the first census that took place while Serenius was governor of Syria. We know that Serenius was governor of Syria somewhere between six and seven AD. Uh, a lot of scholars believe that he served a first term somewhere between six and four BC. So Jesus wasn't born at zero. Jesus was actually born somewhere around five BC. And this is, this is when Luke is telling this story because the people in his immediate audience would have known all of these people, would have known exactly what he was talking about when he said it. He says, so this all took place when Serenius was governor in Syria. And then he, he puts something really important because when he made a decree in Rome, When Octavian said, this is what we're gonna do, it set in motion a series of events. And it says, and everyone went to their own town to register for the census. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem. And again, nobody can see it in this moment. Nobody in that moment knew beyond Joseph and Mary and a few others, but in this moment, this is time, space, and matter coalescing creating a reality that's gonna bring about the promise of God. And so they moved to Bethlehem to go be counted for the census, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. All of reality is moving in the direction of God's promise. And what felt benign, what looked to be just like another act of oppression, or this is just what emperors and empires do. Caesar's words caused Joseph to have to go to Bethlehem. And Joseph took Mary with him, who was nine months pregnant. And ladies, can you imagine riding on the back of a donkey for all of those hours? I mean, it's not comfortable, it's not glorious, it's not sexy. And and here they go, because a man 1,500 miles away said people need to be counted. And so they got moving. Now, before I go any further, I just wanna say something about Joseph. I I think every man in here, we ought to have Joseph on our short list of men that we wanna be like, because let me tell you a little bit about Joseph. Joseph decided to be responsible guys for something he wasn't responsible for. He decided to step up and be a man. He didn't decide to play the boy. He decided to be the man. And when his fiance came to him with some crazy wackadoo story about, honey, I need to tell you something that's really important. You might want to sit down. I don't want to sit down, honey. I'm busy. I'm working. I'm a carpenter. You know, I got to carry this wood. You just tell me what it is. Is it the wedding? Is it the reception? Is your mom ticked again at this whole thing? What's going on? Just tell me. I'm pregnant. What? Yeah, but no, no, it's not what you think well, what do you mean it's not what I, I know, I know what I've been doing and I know who I've not been doing it with, you. And, and so tell me, you know, oh, no, nothing to worry about. It's God's, it's God's baby. Oh, really? It's great. I'm marrying a nutcase. Okay. But no, you know, God convinces him says, hey, you don't need to be, you don't need to worry about this. What Mary's telling you is true. And he, he stepped in, he stepped up. He, he decided to be a man and this, I just love Joseph. Joseph, Joseph is, a, is a hero in this story, such, such a great guy. And so here he is, he's got his fiancee Mary and they're headed to Bethlehem. And this is what Luke says, this. while they were there, while they were there, the time came, the time came. Everything had come to this moment. All of history had come to this moment. It had been 2000 years since God had spoken those words to Abraham. 2,000 years of waiting and it had come to this moment. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger because there were no room, no guest rooms available for them. And the moment had come, the time had come because 1,500 miles away, a man said, let's count some people. And the people who were under the command of that emperor had to get moving. And as they were moving, they were moving to the place of the promise. They were moving in the direction of God's promises being fulfilled. 2,000 years of waiting. He said, well, why wait so long? I love what the apostle Paul said about it. The apostle Paul put it this way. He said, when the set time had fully come. In other words, God knew this date from the very beginning. Before God ever spoke this promise to Abraham, he already had it on his calendar. When the set time had fully come, that's when God sent his son, born of a woman. When everything was just right, after the nation of Israel had been carried off into captivity by the Babylonians, 70 years later, God turns the heart of Cyrus the Great, the emperor of the Medo-Persian empire. And for some reason, Cyrus wakes up one day and says, you know what, I think I'm gonna let the Jewish people go back home. And it seemed like a genius move of a leader to solicit the, the allegiance of a people, not because you're terrorizing them, but because you've been merciful to them and he lets them go back home, having no idea that he too is upon a providence, that God's people are going back home because God's got a set time when a baby's gonna be born in Bethlehem in the town, in the city of David. It, it was just at the right time when there was a common language, the Greek language, Koine Greek, the, the, the language of the common man When there was a common culture, thanks to Alexander the Great, who was also a pawn of providence, who Hellenized the known world that got the stage ready for the arrival of the Savior King. When there were peace in the lands brought about by Octavian, Caesar Augustus, the Pax Romana, which he declared peace in all the lands of the Roman Empire. When there were highways and bridges, infrastructured all throughout the empire that made travel easy. When there was a postal system and urbanization where if you needed to get a message out to the world, it was easy to get the message out to the world. And when everything was in place, God had brought the world to this moment, history, and all the great empires, the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, and the Greeks, and now the Romans, had brought the world to this moment. And what seemed like the natural course of things, what seemed like random, unrelated events, is God orchestrating moving reality in the direction of his promises. And it reminds us that history isn't authored by coincidence. History is authored by providence. So relax, take a breath. When you hear the latest news cycle and you see what's happening in this corner of the world or that pocket or what they're saying in Washington and what they're gonna vote on next and what they're threatening with this and what they're threatening with that, just... Take a breath because God is moving all of reality in the direction of his promises. So the baby was born and then Luke kind of, he shifts gears and shifts focus. And he says this, he says, and there were shepherds, living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And shepherds in those days, they they were kind of considered the worst of the worst. They were considered sinners. They were just constantly ceremonially unclean because they had to deal with animals. So they'd been excommunicated from the temple. They'd been beaten up and bruised by religion. And and these were people who had been told, hey, because of who you are and because of what you do and because of how you live, God has no place for you. You're not wanted in the family of God. There's no place for you in the kingdom of God. So they weren't allowed to worship at the temple. They weren't allowed to be a participant in the faith of their fathers and grandfathers. But it says that these shepherds, these outcasts, these misfits, these oddballs, they were out in their fields watching over their flock. And these are gonna be the first to hear the announcement of Christmas because from his birth, Jesus began to tear down the walls that religion had built between God and people. This was God's way of, of giving a signal to the world that God loves you no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, no matter what religion has said about you, no matter how religious people have treated you and no matter if you have been disinvited or if you've actually been told you're not welcome. God was doing a new thing and God was announcing to the world that how religion feels about people and how religious people feel about people is not the same as how God feels about people. God had come to be on the side of the people who had no one on their side and God had come to stand up for the people who had no one standing up for them. These shepherds were evidence of that. It says, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people and of course, many of you know that the word good news is where we get the word gospel and that's what the gospel is, it's good news. And if the way you understand the gospel doesn't lead to great joy, then you may not understand the gospel. And if the way the churches in our world today tells the good news, if it doesn't create great joy for all people, we may not be telling it right. The good news leads to great joy for all people. Not some people, not really good people, not really rich people, not really blessed people, but for all people. Because the good news, the good news is that there's more than forgiveness available. It's better than forgiveness. The good news is that not only are your sins forgiven, but your sins are forgotten. They're paid for fully, freely, forever. The good news is that the last shall be first. Do you know who that's good news for? Those who are last. You know who it doesn't feel like it's good news for? Those who think they're first. The good news is that a savior has been born, a Messiah has been born. And all of a sudden for all people, there is an equality that Jesus will bring to the world that the world had ever known before and the world is still trying to catch up to still today. Where not only men are welcomed but women are welcome, children are welcome, Jews are welcome, Gentiles are welcome, masters, slaves, everybody, no matter who, no matter what, they've all been invited into the family of God. They all have a seat reserved at the table of this king in his kingdom. The angel says, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. He's Savior to remind you that God is gracious. Jesus came to remind you, to remind me, to remind the world that when you couldn't get to God, God came to you and that God's not angry with you, that God loves you with a love that has no strings attached to it. It is unconditional without prerequisites. God loves you in this moment just as you are. It's the good news that he came to take our sin and die in our place on the cross. That he who knew no sin would become sin for us, that we could be right with God because of what he would do, not because of what we would do. And you've heard me say this hundreds of times, that there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to cause God to love us less. He is our savior. He reminds us that God is gracious. He is the Messiah. He reminds us that God is faithful, that God keeps every single one of his promises. And he is the Lord. He is the sovereign and providential king of the universe and all things are under his control. Today, there has been born in the city of David, a savior, the Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. God had kept his promise, God had sent a savior he had sent a king, the Lord himself had come. You said, but why? Why was it necessary, why? Because how would we have ever known that God was for us if he hadn't come to be with us? That night, that night, light pierced the darkness. That was the night that God broke through the silence with the cry of a baby. That was the night that a savior was born. That was the night that a king was born. The Messiah had come just as God had promised. The gospels go on to present Jesus just as the angels had announced him as savior, Messiah, and Lord. Jesus was baptized by his cousin John and presented to the world as behold the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. From that day, Jesus began to preach, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus began to change people's minds about God and change people's minds about sin and change people's minds about themselves and about their neighbors. It was said of Jesus that he preached as one who had authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. It was Jesus who claimed to be God, who said, I am the Father, we are one. And when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you wanna know what God is like, Jesus would say, he would say, pay attention to me. If you wanna know how God thinks about you, pay attention to me. If you wanna know how God feels about you, pay attention to me because when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus showed up on the pages of history and he announced the dawn of a new era that the kingdom of God had come. And he began to teach what life in God's kingdom looks like. When you and I, when we abdicate the throne of our lives, when we say, we're no longer gonna sit on the throne ourselves, we're no longer gonna call our own shots, live our own lives, do what we wanna do, how we wanna do it, whenever we wanna do it, but we'll step off the throne of our own lives and invite Jesus to sit on the throne of our own lives We will make him Lord, we will make him king, and we will follow his teaching. He said, when you do that, life inside the kingdom, it looks like this, when somebody wrongs you, you're eager and you're quick to forgive because that's how we do it in the kingdom of God. We don't cling to bitterness. We don't live with resentfulness. We extend forgiveness. If you have an enemy, We pray for our enemies in the kingdom of God. We look for ways to bless our enemies in the kingdom of God. When your enemy asks you to go one mile, you go two miles. Inside the kingdom of God, the most important person is not you. In the kingdom of God, the most important person are all the people around you. It's your neighbor, all of them. The ones you politically agree with, politically disagree with, the ones who share your skin color, who have different skin color, the ones who are in your socioeconomic bracket, and those who aren't. Those who look clean and those who don't. Those who are good at being good and those who aren't. All of your neighbors become the most important person to you and the most important thing that you can do is to love your neighbor as you love yourself to serve them to honor them to pray for them to help carry one another's burdens this is what Jesus taught in the Gospels about what this new kingdom it's what it looks like it tells us the story that we all heard that Jesus was betrayed by a friend he was crucified he was buried but on the third day he was raised from the dead And it was his resurrection that validated everything that he taught and everything that he said. It was his resurrection that caused his believers to believe that he was who he claimed to be. It was his resurrection that brought weight to his words when he said, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in me, believe also in God. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If if this were not so, I would not have told you so. If I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And the Jesus, this King, this Messiah who was promised to come the first time, just in some way promised that sometime in the future he would come a second time. When Jesus got ready to ascend back into heaven, and as his followers would watch him, two men in white apparel appeared to them that day and said, you men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing up into the heavens? The same Jesus which you see taken up will come again in like manner. Just as sure as he came the first time to Bethlehem, he's coming again. Matter of fact, the last words of the New Testament, the final words of our Bible is a promise. It's God's final promise. It's the last of all the promises of God. And this is how our Bible's in. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And Christmas reminds me that if God kept his promise to send his son the first time, God will absolutely, without question, keep his promise and send him a second time. One day it will happen just as he promised, that just as lightning flashes across the sky in the east, the heavens will open up and the Lord himself will descend with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And an angel of the Lord will descend with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea and declare that time will be no more. And all the earth will look up to the one whose name is faithful and true who on his robe and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the graves of those who have believed will burst open and corruptible bodies will be exchanged for incorruptible bodies. And mortal bodies will be replaced by immortal bodies. And Jesus, his feet will touch down as the prophets predicted, and as Jesus himself promised, on the Mount of Olives, he will walk across the Kidron Valley, he will walk up the Temple Mount, and he will sit down on the throne of his father David, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and he will abolish injustice, he will eradicate disease, he will destroy death, it will be the final enemy to be destroyed, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory the glory of God the Father. All oppression will cease in his name. Sin, sorrow, and death will be done forever. And the kingdom of God will be fully realized. And those who have received him will be invited in. And those who rejected him will be left out. And today, is an opportunity for you, if you've not already, to receive this Savior, this Messiah, this Lord, who invites you to eternal life, who invites you to abundant life. Let me ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, If you've never made that moment, that decision where you, by faith, invite him in, you receive his gift of grace, his gift of forgiveness, I wanna invite you to do that just now, just in your heart. You You don't have to pray this out loud. You just say something like this, Heavenly Father, right now, the best way I know how, I invite you to come into my heart. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you were buried and I believe that you were raised from the dead. And today I trust you as my savior, my Messiah, my Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Change me. Create in me a new heart. And sit on the throne of my life all the days of my life. In Jesus' name.